Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, teachers across the province are taking part in PA Day training focused on math and test scores. The Hamilton Board of Education will be focusing on bullying. Still in the classroom, the union representing Ontario secondary school teachers will announce the results of their strike vote today. And the impeachment inquiry hearings continue this week with Trump now attacking an aide of Vice President Mike Pence. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. While teachers across the province are taking part in a PA day later this month uh, dedicated to math and boosting test scores, the staff of the Hamilton Wentworth School Board are going to be focusing on bullying. Uh, this, by the way, is Bullying Awareness Week uh, right across the province. But uh, Board Chair Manny Figueroa has asked the province to allow them to re- uh, repurpose that day that, uh, coming up in about a week or so uh, in light of the stabbing of 14-year-old Devin Selvey uh, on September 7th, of course, at Churchill in the east end of the city. The Director of Education for the Hamilton Board, Manny Figueroa, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Manny, good morning. Thank you for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Thank you for having me on. Talk to us about uh, about the concept here and, and your discussions with the ministry to, to focus strictly on bullying. Well, as you mentioned uh, at the beginning here, um, after the incident Sir Winston Churchill, the topic of bullying has, has surfaced throughout our community. So we've been discussing here with the Board of Trustees and also with the Ministry of Education around offering um, some time for all of us to come together. Um, so we asked the ministry if we could repurpose the November 29th PA Day to really focus on one of our other priorities around positive culture and well-being with the topic of bullying prevention um, and intervention. And the ministry uh, absolutely supported us and said, uh, that's a local need right now, then please use that time for all your staff to revisit that topic. Manny, as you've told us in the past, that there is a, an existing protocol for dealing with issues like this. Uh, does it does it need revisiting? Does it need revamping? Well, I think absolutely it needs revisiting on an annual basis, Bill, because for two, two reasons. We know that there's you know turnover of staff. Um, so when the new staff coming on, just a reminder of our policies and procedures. And um, and I think it's a good refresher that we all collectively own this responsibility of. Uh, of uh, responding to incidents and, and putting the research in front of people. Because, you know, the research is, is sort of astonishing that 75% of people, you know, in their lifetime have identified that they've been bullied. And we know that if the issue is responded to within the, um, you know, right away immediately, that more than half of the incidents within 10 seconds um, dissipate and never occur again. So we think it's important that we also help our educators look at some of the tactics and also ways of reporting and responding. So, absolutely, it's important to revisit on a regular basis. Uh, I understand there's still investigations ongoing, but obviously, in light of the tragedy that happened at Churchill, uh, there was a breakdown there. And, and notwithstanding the you know the stats that you just referenced here, Manny, uh, something didn't go right there. I mean, what's what's Plan B when that that initial reporting me- mechanism doesn't seem to be the, the effective way to handle things? So, yeah, Bill, when it comes to that incident, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll repeat it again. I believe the school um, really uh, worked hard to create the right culture there. In terms of uh, our investigation, um, at this point, not commenting on that incident because we know the tragic loss of Devon. It, it's just terrible. But we, we are working with the police currently right now to understand um, the complexity of, of that case. So, um but in the general sense, we know that uh, bullying is, is an issue that we need to come together. And it doesn't, it's becoming more complex, as you can imagine. You and I have spoken about this, the different forms of bullying. So when you add cyberbullying into this e- equation, 
a lot of the incidents that occur filter in from the community, then filter into our schools, and our school uh, staff are trying to manage it. So it is complex, and that's why I'm excited also around the safe, um, the bullying prevention and intervention review panel um, to do a fulsome review with our community, because I think there'll be recommendations that'll surface not only for us as a school board um, to do how we can do better, but also for our community and families. How can we all take ownership around this? And also some recommendations I think will be coming to the to the ministry. Uh, um, I think we can take a leadership role in sort of this review. Talk to us about some of the, the methodology that's currently in place and maybe some of the things that are going to be talked about at, uh, at this special meeting. I know that uh, there's some bullet points uh, in the story that we were looking at today, including something called emotion coaching. What's that all about? Well, thanks for the question, Bill. One of the things we've noticed, our last student survey in 2017-18, uh, our students in grades four to six, six in this survey, 55% of these of the students said they identify a caring adult in the school. In our grades seven to 12 students, 40% said they identify a caring adult. Why is that critical? Because we know when uh, students might not feel safe or might feel bullied, if they have what they identify a caring adult they can report to, um, who can respond to it, then an intervention can occur. Of course, when people look at this and say, of course I care. So we're doing some training and some research uh, really um, around some brain research in terms of how do you intervene in the moment. So we know that this emotion coaching, I'll I'll speak about it from a parent. I'm sure at times when I intervene with my 20-year-old and 18-year-old and tell them how to solve a problem, I don't think they always walk away from my conversation, Bill, saying, oh, my dad really cares. Um, So what we've learned sometimes is that we have to be able to validate students. In other words, listen to what they're saying, try to validate in terms of how they're feeling before we start to provide solutions. Um, the brain research is so clear. It's like that fight or flight mode. You're, you know, uh, we flip our lids, and when we're in that emotional state, we're not listening to suggestions. So how do we close that lid, validate to understand what really is the issue that the student might be experiencing and then start to brainstorm possible solutions. So that emotion coaching is, is, is what we believe we can all own. You don't need to be a clinician to do it, but we can all sort of put that practice in place in hopes that our students, we can identify in terms of how they're feeling and then provide them solutions, and hence be more of a caring adult is, is how they define. But our students say, yeah, people care, but they don't always listen to what I'm saying. So how extensive is this going to be? I mean, because, you know, one student's caring adult might be, you know, teacher A, another one's could be teacher B. I mean, this this pretty much has to be all-inclusive, doesn't it? Right, and that's why we think it's important ar- across the entire school. I mean, in some cases, the caring adult might not be, you know, might not be the classroom teacher. It could be the educational assistant who knows the student best. Sometimes we've seen cases where our caretakers have developed a great relationship. Sometimes uh, it's our school uh, administrators. So that's why it needs to be a system-wide approach. So it's not only happening on, um, on the PA day reviewing bullying prevention intervention. We're embedding some of these practices in every monthly staff meeting. So what we're doing is doing some 15 minutes of learning, go and practice, come back the next staff meeting and sort of report what's worked and what hasn't worked. So because um, we know sometimes the, the full sit and get doesn't work, so we have to embed these in our monthly staff meetings to practice. And you're right, the school-wide approach um, is, an, is an important piece. Manny, what if the student uh, isn't able, for one reason or another, to, to clarify and to, and to articulate 
uh, what they're going through. Are, are, are teachers or those caring ad- adults, whomever they might be, are, are they trained to be able to, to look for signs of, of, of what might be causing some problems with students? Oh, um, it's a great question. This PA day, we've, we're also looking at sort of how do you detect some early signs, right? How do you detect a student who, um, you know, was so engaged and all of a sudden it's just a little withdrawn? How do you notice that a student's attendance started to drop off? Or students' grades have, are, are not at par. Well, some, there's some sometimes early detections. Also, through anonymous, uh, our anonymous app, uh, sometimes we have their peers will report anonymously some concerns on behalf of their, uh, of, of, their, of their classmates. But in extreme cases, that's why we also engage, you know, with our parents and our social workers are available as well because they do have um, extensive training, clinical training to provide further support. But that's going to be part of our uh, PA day on November 29th, walking through some scenarios and then how do you do, detect some early signs? The other element to this is is the the more unpleasant side of this, and that's dealing with the perpetrators themselves. Uh, what what kind of a process is in place for something like that, Manny? I mean, these are you know we, we can talk about being proactive, et cetera, and talk about you know looking for the signs and looking for how to to help people that are being victimized by this. But you know that there are perpetrators. Oftentimes, uh, the, there are perpetrators that do this time and time and time again. H- how does the board plan to handle that? Yeah, so. Again, so under our other policies, when we talk about progressive discipline, I mean, there are cases that we have that students have been, you know, suspended uh, from school because of uh, repeated uh, behavior. Um, so if there's a safe school infraction, uh, we're required to um, visit suspension and expulsion as, as, a, as an option. However, we also know that part of this work, that if we just exclude students, if we, we, we say, how do we help also help the perpetrator? Why do students um, bully? Part of the, um, the resources we're providing to schools and to parents is to now identify, am I a victim of bullying, but it, it, could I possibly be a bully as well? So how do you identify signs as a parent or uh, as educators? Are there students who may be, um, you know, starting to bully kids and why? What we know from the research a lot of times is it's, it's difficult to detect. But bullying is, you know, connected to a power imbalance. And sometimes, you know, the, the students who are, you know, the most popular students uh, because of that power imbalance, uh, you know, maybe maybe perpetrators are bullying that, that people may not even see. But uh, I, that's why it's important that th- this um, communication with the parents, and that we all need to collectively own this because some of the complexity of this issue, as you can imagine, Bill, surfaces into schools because of things that have occurred in the community that we only have part of the context. But in extreme cases, yes, I mean, we do have suspensions and expulsions that occur at times, and then we do offer alternative programs. In our expulsion program we call Gateway, there we work with the John Howard Society uh, as an example of a partner to not only provide academic support, but social and emotional support to have people understand and some restorative justice practice to understand, you know, when you behave this way, do you, do you really understand the impact on the victim? So there are extreme interventions that we use as well. You can control the the school environment, obviously, but we all know from past discussions, Manny, that the the home environment could also be a contributing factor to the people that are, are bullying other, other students uh, from time to time. Uh, how far can you go? How how can you reach out to that and, and without being accused of meddling in somebody's private life or home environment where that, in fact, might be where this whole thing is starting? 
Yeah, well, I always say this, Bill, that we have the students five to six hours a day in our care. So uh, we, we are positioned well as public education to take an active leadership role in this. And, um, and it, it is complex. We know the students who have a larger number of, of healthy relationships in their life, caring adults, whether at school, whether they have a part-time job, whether they're in clubs um, and at home, they're more likely to be successful. So I always say this to our educators. You know, we can only control, we can only influence what's in our control. So if we're going to vent and complain about situations that are of our control, um, then we're going to lose the opportunity to sort of do what we can. But you're right. It, it, it becomes more complex if, you know, uh, some of our youth are experiencing uh, challenging um, uh, family environments or, uh, and but doesn't mean we give up. We, we got to figure out a way to engage and connect. And that's sometimes why we do reach out to some of our social work supports and some of our community partners who provide additional support, not just for the students, but for the families. Is, is communication with that family part of the protocol? Yes, absolutely. It has to be. And you can imagine at times that, uh, you know, the communication might not always be well received, um, but we have to have the conversation uh, about, you know, what might be happening at school and, and how can we help? So this is, a, as we mentioned, is going to be happening in the PA Day, and just next week it's going to be occurring. Uh, for people that want to be involved in this, obviously you're going to handle this from the school environment, but for families and parents who say, listen, we'd like to know what's going on, how can they get more information? How can they contact uh, you or your departments about, about gaining information about this and maybe being part of the solution? Yeah, so there's two. I think there's two opportunities. We always encourage our families currently to reach out to their school administrators. You'll see on there, there's a website that we've completely dedicated uh, to this topic. So we look at all our resources and we put them in a, in, in a website that people can access them all. Talk to your school administrators. Talk to your educators, your, your classroom teachers, if you see any kind of early signs. Uh, but uh, And also another opportunity, in December there will be a communication, our Safe Schools Review Panel. You've heard um, the... Um, the panel names have been identified. There'll be a communication plan in December because there'll be multiple opportunities within our community in January, February, and March uh, for parents to come in, our community partners to come in, our staff, but more importantly, even our students to come in and share their perspective. We, we feel that we can't, we know we can't do this alone and we have to engage in this conversation. So there'll be enough, there'll be uh, multiple opportunities for our, our community to engage in this conversation and bring some advice in terms of how we can move forward. Well, as we've talked about in the past, uh, Manny, of course, uh, one bullying incident is one too many, and uh, obviously we're going to try to get a handle on this. Uh, this is going to be a process, and it's going to take some time to do this, but uh, we'll stay in touch with you as this uh, evolves over the next little while. I do appreciate the time today, though. Thank you, Bill, for uh, the conversation. Thanks so much. Uh, Manny Figueroa, of course, who is the uh, Director of Education for the Hamilton Board of Education. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, as you got the kids off to school today, uh, probably a little voice in the back of your head is saying, well, how long is this going to go on? Because we could be in for some, well, work stoppages, maybe even strikes when it comes to the high schools and elementary schools for that matter, too. Elementary teachers are set to begin their work to rule job action on the 26th of November. Uh, the High School Teachers uh, Federation says they're going to release results of their strike vote later today. I think we can pretty much guess exactly where they're going to go with this. Uh, joining us to talk about all this is Richard Brennan, retired journalist who uh, covered Queen's Park for many, many years, of course, for the Toronto Star. Uh, Badger, how are you doing this morning? Good, Bill. 
uh, you've been down this road before. Uh, just about everybody who's ever sat in front of a classroom right now, whether it's elementary schools, whether it's uh, high schools, whether it's the Catholic board or the public board, uh, they're all pretty ticked off right now with this government, and uh, they look like they're ready to push back. Well, I, I hate to be a moderating influence here. <laughs> but <laughs> Not that we need <laughs> one. <laughs> no, it's, no, we... Uh, I just want to point out that, you know, I don't think parents listening should panic yet. We haven't had a province-wide strike at white teachers since 1997. And that was a two-week strike. Yeah. So there's many steps to go. I mean, it's not looking good. I agree with you entirely. But there's many steps to go before that happens. And, uh, you know, work to rule and, you know, and continuing uh, no, negotiations. So, but it, it's, it's not looking good. This is, I, I know that inevitably this is going to, you know, draw comparisons to what happened in 1997, uh, where the, the Harris government, of course, uh, drew a line in the sand and, and basically the teachers walked over it and bingo, we, we had the door shut down. Uh, we, how do we get this way again? I mean, usually you'd like to think that human nature suggests, Richard, that you know, when you go down this road before, you do whatever you can to try to avoid that kind of controversy and calamity once again. But we seem to be right back in the same position. Well, the teachers, let's face it, aren't afraid to strike because I mean they've got the numbers and they're you know, and the OSSTF is fairly militant. But on the other hand, I mean, this whole thing started. Many will agree, I hope, uh, that with with the government bringing in, uh, you know, increased class size, you know, cuts to education, boards having to deal with that, teachers being laid off. So that really set the tone for this this whole thing. And the teachers obviously are, are you know, see this and, and wondering what else is going to going to happen to them what else are going to do the teachers i mean look at build 124 that that's and i'll explain that that's the uh the legislation the proposed legislation that caps wage settlements for teachers nurses and many other uh public servants at one percent and that really is a is a, a kind of stick in the eye to the teachers because you know, they're, they're saying well hold on a second you you've established the guidelines before we even before we even negotiate, and and again, so that is really exacerbated the situation. Well, it pretty much takes that that element off the table, and not that the teachers would want it off the table. I mean, how, how can you possibly negotiate a salary increase in this? That all you're ever going to get is one percent. But also juxtapose that. You talk about stick in the eye uh, with the announcement a couple of weeks ago, of course, that they've given the parliamentary assistance, a legislative assistance, I guess, uh, about a 14% increase. Uh, so it's kind of like, you know, do as I say, not as I do. That seems to be the message from the government. Well, imagine that a government that, you know, is a talks out of both sides of their mouth. And and that's, and they, you know, teachers are looking at that and it's going, well, what's, what's going on here? Well, you know, the big in the background, the big concern is, as you well know, Bill, is that the parents, what's going to happen? They're all thinking, you know, okay, you know, there's work to rules, you know, probably won't, uh, you know, the, uh, the elementary teachers are saying that won't affect uh, the actual day-to-day, but they won't be doing extra curricular, that kind of stuff. But it all comes down to, if they go out on strike, as they did in 97, 
that leaves parents in a real jackpot. What do they do with, the, with their kids? And that was a two-week strike, and, and I remember it well, believe me. And I just remember how, you know, parents were just beside themselves trying to figure out what they were going to do when, you know, they're at work and what they're going to do with the kids. That was uh, the first year I, I campaigned uh, my, my first term on city council, as that was happening. And uh, all anybody wanted to talk about at the doors, they want to talk about their taxes or whether or not the garbage was going to get picked up or the stove was cleaning. He says, when are you going to send the teachers? But I said, it's on city council. We don't have to. That, that's a, you, if you're a public official or wanting to be a public official and, and you get on somebody's doorstep like this, I mean, they're going to rant at you. And you know this is going to happen again if they go down that road. Oh, boy. Oh, Absolutely. We're, we're, we're quite a ways from that. You know, I, I just want people to understand that we're a long way from that happening. You know, the OSSTF will probably announce 97 or 98 percent yeah, in favor sure. of strikes, let's face it. And they're, they're in a position where they could strike right immediately if they want to. But they have to give five days' notice. But that's not going to happen. There's, there's going to be continual you know, negotiations. Government's going to move. The teachers are going to move. You know, if everything's right with the world, they, they won't go out and strike. But there are bitter feelings here that we can't even, uh, you know, really get a handle on with the teachers. We, we know they're upset. But I, I just think the teachers are trying or are willing to do what they have to to send this government a message. And that could include strike. Well, let, let's again. Let's hope that's not the case. That that it can both both sides can sit down with, with the various teachers unions and figure out figure out how they can get out of this mess. Well, and and again, you know, the government's own words are going to come back and bite them. And I get, as you said, not for the first time. But you know, we remember the premier's pledge that not one person's going to lose their job. Well, we now know that a lot of teachers have lost their lost their jobs. Because hundreds of them have lost their jobs, and hundreds more were going to lose their jobs. So, and when we've talked to Harvey Bischoff, who's the, the of course the president of the you know, Secondary School Teachers Federation, uh, they keep talking about job security and work conditions, and and that doesn't mean the temperature in the classroom. That means you know the atmosphere in the classroom, how many students they're going to have, uh, and and a number of issues like this. Uh, this is pretty serious stuff, and and it really flies in the face of the policies the government's put in place. So, how do you back down from that? Well, that's just it, because, I mean, there's a, uh, teachers are saying, we want a return to what the classroom size was before. Uh, what you've done, you've not, you've, you've put the teachers uh, in a, a bad situation. They've, it's been, there's been layoffs. But not only that, you have the students who are having to sit in these much larger classes and they're not getting the individual attention that they deserve. And, and, you know, and not only that, you know, they reduce the number of programs that are available to students. And, and that, well, we saw students, you know, protesting out in the street because of that, because it was affecting their chances of getting into university or college. Yeah, there are some ramifications on this, but you have to deal through, as you did for many years when you were covering uh, Queen's Park, you got to deal through all the, the bluster that's going on here and the bombast. And, and you've heard, I mean, we've had both sides of the show. We've talked to Harvey Bischoff from the Secondary School Teachers Federation, Earl Manners from the elementary school. We've talked to the education minister. Seems like a nice guy. And, and he was portrayed when he took over this portfolio 
as a kinder, gentler guy, but he was still going to be firm and follow through on the Ford policies. Uh, the problem, yeah, well, that's his marching orders. Well, sure they are, but it's, he, he, you know he's, he may be uh, he may be uh, an iron fist and a velvet glove, but he he's still got to he's still got to you know meet the uh, the criteria and and goals that they've uh, the government has set out. That's that's why I'm not you know I'm I'm not thinking this is going to go well because I just think both sides are entrenched. Things can move, of course, but it's at this point it's just not looking good. With a guy like Stephen Lecce, though, and you know, or others that are at the bargaining table, and again, you know, the the image that he portrays is of this guy that's looking. I I just want you know I'm out here for the kids. I want this to work out for everybody. I'm hearing a different situation, though, from the people that are around the bargaining table on the other side of that table that just say, no, he's, he's a Ford disciple, just like all the other ones. Well, of course he is, because he wouldn't have the job if he wasn't. But I, 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 I'm in the same opinion as you. I don't see a whole lot of wiggle room here for either side. I don't. I mean, I don't think the, I don't think the government's prepared to. I mean, they, they, you know, they established right off the bat that they're going to increase class size. I, don't, I just don't see them moving. I mean, they, they've kind of suggested in the past, recent past, that, you know, they're willing to reduce, you know, uh, by a bit, but not much, not to where it was before. And the teachers are, are very firm on that, that they want they want it to be back to where it was before. Do you see that happening? Do you see any movement at all on the government's part there? Well, you know, you, know, you and I aren't at the uh, bargaining table, unfortunately, but... <laughs> We we don't we really don't know, but certainly what I'm hearing from and reading is that th- that's not there's at this point it's not going to happen, and that's what that's what teachers you know they they want they want that you know sure sure they're fighting you know, naturally the union's fighting for its its members, but they're also saying you've got to you've got to do this to make a, the classroom a better learning experience for students. And you've got to bring back those programs that was cut, were cut, because they need these courses to get into university. This is where this is a whole different story from 1997. The the then Harris government had done a pretty good job of demonizing the teachers. Yeah, and a lot of people bought that. Oh yes, absolutely. But that's this is a different ball game. I think teachers, not to a greater extent, have parents on their side because they've seen what's happening in the classroom. Yeah, because this has become a process, hasn't it? I mean, you know, since these uh, Ford policies have been announced, I think the teachers have actually done a pretty good job of articulating what they thought the the ramifications were going to be. And, of course, you know, the government uh, last school year could simply say, oh, come on, that's not going to happen. Don't be silly. But it has happened. An awful lot of what the teachers said was going to happen it has happened. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and they, said they predicted that there's going to be, you know, teachers being laid off by, the dro- by droves. And that happened. So, so I'm, not, I'm not so sure that everybody is sympathetic to the teachers, but at least I think this time around they understand where the teachers are and why, and why they're taking the stand that they are. But again, uh, you know, the government has said, you know, they're they're determined. It's their mandate. They said to reduce costs and bring down the deficit. And they're saying they they you know the one percent 
you know, the go, uh, ceiling, and other things are what they have to do to bring down the deficit. And whether you know whether pe- people are buying that, and a lot are, but there's it, people with kids in classrooms are saying, well, you know, I'm more worried about what's happening in my for my kids' education than bringing down the deficit at this moment. I'm, I'm looking for the ace that somebody's going to lay on the table here. Uh, and, and might it be the fact that, you know, if their justification was, well, we've got to reduce this huge, huge deficit that the, the liberal government left us, uh, we already know from the uh, from the auditor that the nowhere, deficit is nowhere near as big as, as Ford said it was. Did they look at that and say, okay, maybe we can slack off a little bit here? I think the government's going to do everything it can to avoid this strike. And it, it may be that they will they will uh, reduce the number of uh, numbers in the classroom enough to appease the teachers, and you know, and maybe introduce some programs that students are finding necessary to, to go on to uh, post secondary. I think that that's a possibility because I really don't believe this government wants a teacher strike. It's not it's not going to help them down the road come election and and it's just and it's just not you know it's, and it's not going to be good for ontario period well there's a whole lot of downside to this so if, uh, as you mentioned the families the impact it's going to have on families uh you know parents are going to have to be scrambling to find daycare to look after their kids because they can't stay off work there's that element but the other one though comes right down i think to to really uh the approval rating of the government and and to your point uh, in 1997, Harris still had a relatively high approval rating across the province because uh, a lot of people bought into the common sense revolution. I mean, this government still uh, has half of the support it had when it got elected last year, less than half, I guess, now. So uh, they don't need another nail in that coffin. They, they don't, and, and they and they know that. So I really believe that something is going, it's going to move. Something's going to move. What that something is, I can't quite tell you. But there's only a few things that can happen, you know. If Bill 124 goes through, which it will because they've got a, a majority, so you're not talking cash anymore, you know, 1%. But there's other things that they can do to appease the teachers, and I, I think there's every good chance that they'll be able to do that. But whether the teachers are entrenched, it, that's that's what's that remains to be a question there. You get the sense when you're looking at what's going on here that these these guys it's it's like the brakes have gone on your car. You don't want to go down that hill, but you're going to anyway. Uh, I because I, I know I've talked to a number of teachers and yeah they're angry at the government, but they don't want to strike. And of course we've talked to the government officials who don't want to strike either. But it just seems as if they're on a collision course. Well, let's hope that's not the case. Uh, and this is a lot of this is rhetoric, right? This. Time. I could say there's so many uh, you know, chess moves to be made yet. So I, I, you know, I mean, it isn't, it isn't, it isn't that time to throw up your hands and say, oh, you know, we're doomed or there's going to be a teacher strike. You know, there's much more that can happen. We had the uh, support workers, the education support workers, who were in a similar position a few weeks ago, and the, the eleventh hour they finally came up with some sort of an agreement anyway that was eventually ratified, begrudgingly, as I'm told by a lot of the membership. Uh, is that what we're looking at here, an 11th hour situation? Yeah, probably. I mean, I've, you know, I've covering the park for so many years, I've seen things come right down to the wire, and all of a sudden, you know, some magic 
formulas offered and uh, and accepted. You know, teachers don't want to be, you know, there's a lot of teachers that don't want to be strike. It's easy. I've done it to vote in favor of a strike because it sends a message. That's kind of the, the first the rung of the ladder, if you will, is to take that strike vote to send the government message that we're not kidding here. And and then you're hoping that, you know, that gets makes the government move on something. It, that's the easy thing to do. The hard thing to do is to hit the bricks. You're, you're you know, and you get a portion of your salary through, you know, uh, strike pay. And it's cold, it's nasty, and, you know, and, and the longer it goes at a teacher strike, the more parents are ticked off. And then they'll share that, their anger, both the government and the teachers. So it really it really doesn't help anybody. Well, because you know as well as I do that if they do hit the bricks, and the, you know, as much as there may be a lot of support for the teachers right now, that dissipates pretty quickly once uh, you have two or three days of, of parents having to go through hoops to try to get their kids looked after. Oh, yeah. You know, they... they you know, the parents maybe can swallow a week, but if it goes any farther than that, uh, it's it's just it's an intolerable situation for parents, and and it's not a great situation for the government, and it's not a great situation for the teachers who are uh, you know out on the street. So hopefully, uh, you know, minds there'll be a meeting in the minds that will will avert this strike. But, boy, the, the saber-rattling is something else right now. Sure is. Uh, well, Badger, we'll keep an eye on this and certainly stay in touch with you. Appreciate this today. Okay, Bill, you take it easy. You too. Richard Brennan, of course, longtime Queen's Park reporter for the Toronto Star. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is another interesting week in Washington as the impeachment inquiry hearings uh, continue uh, over the uh, next couple of days. Uh, over the weekend, U.S. President Trump lashed out at yet another witness who's set to appear, Jennifer Williams, who was an aide to Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, she's set to testify later on this week, but not the only big name that uh, is going to be in front of this committee. Joining us to talk about what could be happening here is L.A. Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at uh, Carleton University in Ottawa. Elliot, good morning. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm fine, Bill. Good. Uh, as always, watch the uh, the Sunday morning political shows. Uh, it's amazing to, time after time to see the Republicans trotting out there one after another with the same talking points, uh, trying to justify uh, what Trump has been doing, especially with some of the tweets last week. But it's uh, becoming less and less credible, isn't it? Not to his base. No, that's not true. Not to the Republicans who care, not to the people who are watching or not watching because they've already made up their mind. So uh, this is um, the Democrats very carefully, brick by brick, as they're saying, laying out the case for bringing forth. Remember, this is an inquiry. Will they go on to uh, having articles of impeachment? So, yes, that's what this is about. They are building up to formal articles of impeachment which will then, of course, uh, if it gets uh, passed by the House, goes on to the Senate for a trial. And, and that's a process they say they'd like to see wrapped up in the next couple of weeks. Is, is that timetable realistic? Nancy Pelosi, as you, if you've been watching those shows, has gone on and said, well, we don't have a deadline, we don't have a timeline. She does not know, she says. Uh, the pressure is on them 
to, in fact, get this on through and and get it on up to the House, uh, through the House, on up to the Senate, and have the Senate then uh, do whatever it's going to do, which we know is likely to reject the whole thing, and then they can all get back to the campaign trail uh, and use each side use the uh, this this uh, impeachment process to their own advantage to mobilize their base. What about public support for this, though, Elliot? I mean, as you say, them that's made up their minds aren't going to switch that. I don't think they're going to hear anything that could do that. But it's, I think the stated principle here with the Democrats uh, is, is basically to those that may be sitting on the fence and not quite sure. In other words, if they can increase public support uh, with the population, not so much with the population of the Senate, uh, then maybe maybe a few of those people can sway their votes. Yes, going into this, the whole idea was, look, uh, the American public hasn't really focused on this. We are now going to show them, and once we show them in a medium, you know, TV and cable, uh, you can watch this, then sufficient numbers of the public will finally focus in, they'll become convinced, they will begin to uh, solidify their opinions in favor uh, of the clear evidence as the Democrats see it. That would have to include, however, the Republican base, and that's a gamble that the Republican base would change enough, or enough of them would change their mind, that that would then free up the Republicans in the Senate to say, yes, uh, we, we do see that we can't get out of agreeing that a constitutional breach has taken place. However, um, there's a poll out that shows, in political shows, that 81% of the population says there's nothing they will hear that will change their mind. And only eight, uh, they're likely or probable. And only 10% who said we might be open to it. So this then becomes a different ballgame. Now it's a game of, well, which side can convince independents? The Democrats now want to switch enough of the independents and some soft Republican votes uh, or solidify those votes that are coming their way. Uh, so they'll use this actually as an electoral uh, process, uh, very narrowly defined. That seems to be the name of the game today. How effective, with that in mind then, Elliot, how effective was the testimony last week towards that goal? It's very effective if you're a Democrat or people who are just watching uh, very clearly everything that has been alleged. Because remember, all this was done, uh, you and I have talked about this, the president himself said, uh, and he, he first, we all got into this, remember, because a whistleblower uh, said, hey, I've heard some very disturbing things. And then the president himself releasing uh, to the public a, a what he calls, I don't know, a summary of a transcript or something, not a transcript, of a telephone call where he does tell the president of Ukraine, I need a favor, though. <laughs> so we have um, the president himself already laying out the grounds for a, a probable un- article of impeachment there. Whether this will change anybody's mind going forward, however, is very doubtful. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but as I was watching the testimony on Friday uh, with the live tweets that were going on, uh, and Adam Schiff, of course, the chairman of the committee, stopped the proceedings right in the middle of it to start reading some of the tweets, uh, suggesting rather strongly that uh, that Donald Trump was actually tampering with the witness in situations like that, which in itself is an impeachable offense, isn't it? Yes. Yes, uh, that's what the consensus is that now, because there's other instances of attempts to intimidate witnesses, I mean, very blatant ones, including the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> including the whistleblower. I mean, they're really, uh, Republicans are really out to out him. Uh, Don Jr. says he's got the name and he's sent it out to his, to his followers of 4 million on <laughs> Twitter. The, um, the uh, things I'm watching for uh, is this. 
as we watch these um, hearings going forward, the two things I'm watching for is this. Will there be anything come out that would change minds? And there's a chance that there will be something come out that, even though people say they aren't changing their minds, that they might. That is, say, John Bolton comes out and says uh, some things. That is, he's somebody credible in the Republican base. If There's a chance of that. But at the moment, I have not seen anything that's going to change any minds one way or the other. The second thing I'm looking for, Bill, is this. So far, the Democrats have basically yielded to the Republican demands that you can't just have a wide witch hunt and you're just throwing things to see if it sticks. None of this is serious. So the Democrats have agreed to the Republicans to say, no, we have one clear focus, and that's on this particular phone call and Rudy Giuliani. But there's a chance that as this goes on, other avenues of inquiry could open up. Remember, there's six House committees that have been investigating the president all along. So, And there's 15 court cases and who knows what else. So there's a chance that what we're starting with may not be where we end up, and that could be at a different place and a different uh, prospect for whether the impeachment can lead to a conviction. At the moment, I don't see anything that's going to change mind or so far no sign of a new path. Which surprises me. I'm, I'm surprised that there's been very little discussion about where this whole thing started. I mean, you know, connect the dots here, people on the committee. This this real uh, uh, thing with the the Ukraine situation and and their supposed or alleged involvement in the last U.S. election is really a, a, that that was Putin's idea. I mean, that's he's the one that told Trump that no, it's, it wasn't us. It was them. And of course, he just bit that and, and figured that's the way it's going to be right now. And so the, you can't separate the Russian investigation from this because I, I still think that they're if they're not you know joined at the hip, they're at least cousins. Well, the Democrats are now trying to make clear uh, what some of the people, remember the professionals we're hearing from now, the, the State Department people, the people who have been involved professionally in their careers are doing testifying now uh, until Sunderland, who's t- tomorrow night. But uh, what they've been saying in one way or another is that all of this benefits Putin. So that, uh, let's see, I've got uh, Yanukovych's, uh, Yanukovych's, yeah, yeah, Yanovich uh, was uh, testifying, the ambassador who got fired. Mm-hmm. How is it that foreign corrupt interests can manipulate our government? Which countries' interests are served when the very corrupt behavior we've been criticizing is allowed to prevail? Such conduct undermines the U.S., exposes our friends, and widens the playing field for autocrats like President Putin. Now, she was a highly effective witness, and that's the one that was... Uh, tweeted against as she was testifying. So she's, uh, she's articulating what the Democrats are now trying to highlight uh, repeatedly and, and, and correctly, I believe, that the only winner in all this is Putin, that Putin has really been manipulating Trump to manipulate the system. And all this goes back to the fact that Donald Trump uh, has, in his own mind and a lot of other minds, had the legitimacy of his election question all along, because he only, he only got there, according to a lot of people, and, and apparently in, in Trump's own mind, and he's worried about it, he's only there because Putin cheated on his behalf. And, and, and one of the concerns that is not being raised a lot, but is in the background of all this, is, is anybody watching to see what Russia will do in the upcoming election? 
Trump has always used a strategy, even from back to the time when he was just campaigning for the, the job in the first place, of, of simple phrases and catchphrases to try to, to apply uh, and, I guess, gain a favor with his base. So it was it was a crooked Hillary, of course, in the presidential right. campaign. And now it's never Trumpers. Uh, right. Anybody who testifies against him or in any way uh, starts to slag his administration, they're a never Trumper. They didn't want me to be president anyway, so this is all just scandalous. And it seems, it seems to be resonating, Elliot. It is, and, and right now it's being turned on. And a, a senior aide to Vice President Pence, his his senior aide said, uh, she's on his team, saying this was uh, seemed to me highly inappropriate and uh, and wrong, basically. And now she's being labeled a never Trumper. And remember, Pence's name starts to flit in and out of this. Uh, he may have been involved in the Rudy Giuliani. Uh, escapades uh, to undermine the American professionals in the field and to push the, the line that this is really all uh, two things, that Ukraine really is the source, not Russia is the source of election interference, and that's coming more into this term cloud strike you may have heard. Remember, that what the President of the United States wanted out of Ukraine was two things. First is what we're, everybody's talking about. You've got to publicly announce you are going to be investigating my political opponent, and that's when, that's what the basis of the impeachment's about. The second thing he was under, he was after, was to, uh, and, and you alluded to this earlier, Bill, that Putin put in his mind that, that the Russians did ha- had nothing to do, didn't hack the DNC. It was actually somebody in the Ukraine, and this firm CloudStrike is there. So he was pushing that also on uh, on Ukrainian uh, president to to investigate. What are we going to hear from Gordon Sondland, who's going to testify again in front of this committee this week, Elliot? Uh, t- first time, of course, in, in, in his testimony in the Q&A, said that uh, he had little to no contact with Donald Trump at all, even though he gave about a million dollars, I guess, for the inauguration stuff. Then, of course, the story of the phone call came out uh, in that restaurant that he took on a on a, an insecure, yeah. unsecure phone. Uh, and, of course, Sutherland, oh, oh, that call. Yeah, yeah, that one's... Uh, uh, we don't know what he's going to say, or he's going to recant, or if he's got more information. Uh, wh- where's this going to go? Well, also, we now have, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal reporting today, they have a whole lot of uh, texting back and forth. They've got documentary evidence to go with that the uh, reported phone call in the restaurant. Which is important, because it links the, him directly to yes. the president there. Yes, uh, so we have the interesting case here, where Roger Stone has just now been convicted and is going to jail. Uh, this probably weighs on the mind of anybody about to testify before Congress that lying to Congress can end you in very serious uh, legal jeopardy. We'll have to see how he handles that. He's already amended his statement once, as you pointed out, and then uh, he is in position to say, no, I'm not secondhand, this isn't hearsay, I'm the direct, because that's been the Republican line. Oh, this is all hearsay, nobody involved was... Is, is testifying now. He's now we have somebody who's actively involved, the key actor actually, and he's along with Giuliani, and um, he's he's going to be in a very difficult situation. The Republicans on the committee will defend him to the degree possible, but the Democrats are going to go after him to clarify that yes, indeed, this was a direct order from the president. He was acting on behalf of the president, even though he had no official role in Ukraine, and that what he was after was exactly what everybody's saying, that this was to get Ukraine to open up an investigation on the primary political opponent at that point, Biden, who still is, by the way, leading in the polls. Uh, and that's, that's the constitutional issue. So he's a key witness.
But it, again, you, you talk about the intransigence of, of the people that are watching this right now. Uh, as you say, he's already tweeted over the weekend, uh, Jennifer Williams is going to be, uh, who was working in, in Pence's office, apparently is a never-Trumper. Uh, so at least the, the worst thing we can point here, they're ter- terribly guilty of, of bad hiring then if they're hiring all these people that were supposedly Trump loyalists who all of a sudden apparently turned uh, their backs on them, or, or allegedly have anyway. Yeah, what I would like to start seeing right now uh, is Mike Pompeo's name brought to the fore because Mike, Mike Pompeo was head of the CIA, and now he's Secretary of State. These are his people. Um, remember, he's a West Point grad, uh, he number one. He, he graduated first in his class, and now we have and and the issue of the Kurds. We have instances where Mike Pompeo can be accused by others of basically leaving people behind, not looking after your team, betraying your team, throwing your team under the bus in order to protect yourself. And Mike Pompeo has presidential ambitions as well as senatorial ambitions. So I'm curious what's going to come out of this as we go forward. Uh, what Pompeo's role is going to be. Uh, apparently, we just saw a news flash on this that the President of the United States now is unhappy with Pompeo for the first time because he wants Pompeo to get his people in line. That is, the people that we have been watching testifying, saying there's something wrong here. He wants, uh, he thought Pompeo should get them uh, to uh, fall into line behind the President's position. Well, it's going to be a. A busy, busy week and a very eventful week, I guess, in Washington. We'll certainly uh, stay in touch as this evolves. Elliot, thanks, as always, for the time today. Oh, you're very welcome, Bill. Take care. Elliot Tepper, of course, from Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.